0: Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of How To Live The Podcast, where we have real meaningful and fun conversations with people who inspire us. And sometimes we just have them with each other. We are your hosts, Jess
1: and Steph Zedon, and today we come to you together from our big pink couch. That's right, friends, we are in the office. Oh my gosh, it's actually been kind of nice to get
0: out of the house and like put on a shirt, although I don't plan
1: on making a habit of it. But I did say to Jess this morning, I feel like I'm developing a little bit of social anxiety, like the idea of just getting out of bed, getting dressed and driving to the office for a podcast interview was like a lot of effort. And I'm feeling that when we all come out of this, there's going to be like another adjustment period to go back to real life. It definitely won't happen overnight.
0: I feel like for a while we'll all be very used to just laying low and not really making that many plans. And I kind of like laying low and not making any plans.
1: Same. I kind of love it. It is so nice. Like it'd be nice to like – be able to go out and go hiking in nature and introduce a few things, but I'm definitely going to be bringing a lot of that slowness into my real life when this is all over.
0: Yeah. Like at the moment, if I make like a virtual brunch plan on the
1: weekend, I'm already feeling overwhelmed by how many plans I have. And I'm like, "Ah, I don't have enough hours for myself. I know. (laughs) Well, yeah, definite positive to come out of this is how much we are all prioritizing ourselves right now, which is really, really great. Totally. And
0: boy, Oh boy, do we have an episode in store for you guys today.
1: Oh my goodness. This was a podcast guest that we've been planning for a while now. We were actually hoping to be over in the US at the moment, recording some podcast episodes, but seeing as that didn't happen, we're jumping on the old Zoom calls to fast track these ones to you guys now, because we don't want to be waiting another year till we can all travel. Mm, and today is very special.
0: This interview is with Alok Vade Menon, who is a gender non-conforming writer and performance artists and all around special human really very special human you guys might recognize them from Instagram they have an incredible following they do such cool stuff they were in the Sam Smith video the other
1: day and Demi Lovato which obviously we talk all about and Wow, this conversation really took a lot of twists and turns. Alok explains what it means to be gender non conforming, and we talk about living a life that is authentic to yourself and what it means to really feel your feelings. Alok runs these incredible feelings workshops, which you are going to be hearing all about in this magnificent episode. Really, really
0: just take the time to enjoy this listen. <coughs> Are you in
1: College Station?
2: Yeah. Oh
0: my gosh. I've been to College Station.
2: Wait. Are you serious?
0: I am not joking. When we were doing our research, Stephanie messaged me and she was like, a is from College Station. I was like, you are absolutely lying.
2: Wait, what were you doing in College Station?
1: Our brother had met someone from there. We went to visit them in Austin, Texas, and we heard all about College Station. It was like this running joke on our
0: trip. Like, what do you mean there's a town that's named College Station? Like, that's the most ridiculous name ever. And then I was doing a road trip with my friends through Texas. We didn't know anyone in Texas. And I was like, guys, I actually know someone in this place called College Station. Like, do you want to go? And so we just drove through and we spent like two nights there and like we just hung out (laughs) with them. We like went to a few bars, ate good Mexican food. Like that's about all I
1: remember.
2: Wow. I love that. I I actually feel so happy when people know of our tiny little town.
1: So we did see that you were in the Demi Lovato and Sam Smith video stop it like we were actually dying when we saw that and it was only released a few days ago and on YouTube I think it's had over 10 million views yeah please tell us about that experience like we need to know how did that happen yeah like when did you get the call up what was the reaction like were you dying so
0: much can you tell us about it
2: yeah sure so I'm actually really good friends with Sam and we had been talking about this video And originally, they were planning on just using drag queens for the race to make like a drag race. And then I was like, Sam, let's bring in our friends. And they were like, Okay, I'm going to see what I can do. And I thought that we had like dropped that idea because I hadn't heard about it. And then Sam called me and was like, Okay, you're going to fly out tomorrow. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) So then it sucked because like I didn't have a manicure. Like I I was just not ready. And the casting call were like, bring like multiple pairs of heels because you're going to be running in heels. And I was extremely scared by that because I have fallen so many times in heels. I was like, I'm going to be sprinting in heels. Are you kidding me? (sighs) But I did it. And so it actually was the most magnificent experience. It was so cool. They rented out a sports facility in LA and... There was assistance for every assistant, for every assistant. Like I've never been part of something that was that high production. Mm. You could like see yourself in the camera and be like, oh my gosh, like I look so good. Like when you have that level of equipment, like anything you do gets caught. And everyone who was working the project was so excited because we all just had this sensibility. Like this kind of imagery has never been produced before. So you could just feel that kind of tantalizing energy on set. And Sam was really intentional about it to be like, you know, I want to bring queerness to mainstream pop because it's always latent and like implicit. But never really celebrated and explicit. And this was before we knew that the Olympics were going to be canceled. And I think it has like even more of a resonance now. Mm. So we just filmed that take like 40 times. It was so exhausting. We could just (laughs) keep running back and forth, running back and forth in heels. There was multiple mishaps. Like my outfit got caught on one of the cameraman and almost like ripped off completely. And like, <laughs> we kept on beating Sam and then feeling bad and so trying to slow down. <laughs> <laughs> and then like some of the girls were really competitive and like running super fast and I couldn't run that fast. So but it ended up being just like such a great experience. And so the first day it was just Sam filming and then Demi filmed on the second day. And then at the end, we just all like went out for dinner and we just felt this like overwhelming sense of joy.
0: Yeah, Oh. That was the best rundown. Like, I think that you just ticked off every one of my questions. Like when I was watching it, all the things were popping into my head. Oh my God, I can't believe they had to run in hills. Oh my God, I would be so embarrassed if I had to run in front of my peers like that because I'm a <laughs> terrible runner. Like, what about the outfits? Who did it? So that sounds like such an incredible experience. And I feel like you definitely feel that emotion when you watch it as well. Like, it's very moving. Anytime I've told someone that we're interviewing you, they're like, oh my God, the video. Like, and they're like, sending it to me they're like you have to ask them about it and I'm like yeah yeah obviously it's our first question
2: (laughs) yeah it was so special and I feel like what I appreciated the most about it is that oftentimes I feel like when it comes to mainstream culture people are tokenizing LGBT people But in this video, at every level, we were centered. So it was like a partnership with the Trevor Project, which is a really amazing anti-LGBT youth suicide hotline here in the United States. And they were doing like sensitivity for everyone on staff. Like all the camera people were using Sam's pronouns appropriately, all the directors, all the stylists. And I think that Sam's sort of sensibility with it was like, I really want to create these images for young people who are feeling isolated or feeling impossible. And I think it's really timely here in the United States because there's a lot of anti-trans legislation being introduced that's trying to ban young trans athletes from competing. And so I think to have that kind of imagery of being like, we can be here, feminine, powerful, strong, and that our femininity doesn't compromise our athleticism. Like we're literally here in these like six inch platform heels still killing it. I think is really powerful.
1: Yes, 100%. As you mentioned, you're in College Station at the moment, which weirdly Jess has been to. Can't believe that. And we imagine that Texas is pretty conservative. And we would love to kind of chat to you about what it was like growing up there.
2: One of the beautiful things about growing up here is that I learned how to have a thick skin really early on because I had to defend myself at every level and I had to learn enough about myself to defend myself. And so you develop like a really profound sense of self-knowledge and self-awareness. And I wouldn't give that up for anything because I think it gave me the courage and conviction to do so much of the stuff that I did in my life after that. So many people ask, how are you able to keep pushing or how are you able to deal with this? And I'm like, honey, like I spent the first 18 years of my life in a small town in Texas. I was prepared. On the other hand, what was really difficult about it is that you couldn't speak up about The daily harassment you were experiencing, because that would out you and then make it even more difficult for you to live. And so I had to spend the first 18 years of my life repressing all of my emotions, my feelings, my thoughts, my experiences. And I think that the psychological toll of that is something I'll have to work through for the rest of my life, because I feel like in so many ways I had to grow up fast and I wasn't allowed the kind of innocence of childhood. And I also felt like I always had the sense of being an outsider at every level. And so home was a really difficult space for me because I was like, what does home mean? When in the Indian community I grew up with, everyone was straight and cis. And then in the predominantly white Christian community in my hometown, everyone was kind of racist. And so I was just kind of straddling multiple communities. But I think ultimately... One of the most powerful moments in my life was last summer, which was the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, which was the riots of the Stonewall Bar in New York City, which launched contemporary pride across the world. I decided to bring pride to my hometown, and we put together a really beautiful pride club night at our local bar. And that, for me, was one of the most emotional experiences of my life because it was kind of bridging my old world, which I thought something that could never happen, and my new world. And we brought in drag queens from across Texas. And I just spoke on that mic and I was like, you know what? I want us in the next 50 years to bring pride everywhere, to not just have it be an urban phenomenon on the West or East Coast in the U.S., but in a place like Australia to just be in like Sydney or Melbourne, but actually bringing that to people rather than expecting them to come to the city.
0: Sounds like an incredible initiative and also a really beautiful way that I think we could all look at our scars, you know. And that's definitely a sense that I got from you when I was reading about it is that it sounds like a really difficult and awful experience. But at the same time, it is what makes you who you are and it's created a space where you've been able to shine. And how could you regret that?
2: Right. I just think that we're an accumulation. Of everything that has happened to us. And what I've really learned in my life is the power of reframing. On one story, I could say, woe is me. Things were really hard. It sucked. And the other story I could say, things were really difficult, but I learned so much about how to survive.
1: You mentioned there was like a lot of harassment there growing up. And I'm really interested to know, because when I look at you, you are just such a beautifully unique individual. You know, you put yourself out there completely. Were you hiding who you were or were you always putting it all out there?
2: I've been doing this thing where I'm rereading my high school poems that were like so emo and so dramatic. And I would write them like (laughs) crying in the corner of my room, listening to Dashboard Confessional or like brand new or something. And (laughs) I've been kind of analyzing myself because I think so many of my memories from the past and I think a lot of people who have traumatizing childhood will understand you just learn to compartmentalize and you kind of block out certain things. And so to reconnect with that, you often have to be reminded like, oh, yeah, I did go through that. And I was reading my poems from back then and I was just being so explicit in my poems. I was just saying like, we all wear masks outside, but no one knows the truth of who we really are. Just like really, (laughs) like, hello, everyone, like I'm hiding and no one really picks up on it. And I really felt like there was a separation between the person I was publicly and the person I was privately. But that was complicated because I was part of the kind of millennial blogging moment where I went from my like Zanga to MySpace and I was like really big on MySpace. And so I had this kind of digital sphere that was a third space outside of public or private where I could actually be myself. And I started to establish connections with people online where I could be out about my sexuality and my gender and where I was sharing my art and my ideas and my aesthetics. And so I was getting validation from people who just weren't in my town. And I think that informs the way that I use the internet now. Not everyone is in a city like New York and a lot of people don't have access to community and the internet is actually the most real thing that they've ever experienced. So I really want my work and my ideas and my images to be accessible on the internet to give permission to other people to exist
1: isn't it so amazing like there are so many negatives that we talk about with social media but at the same time there are so many things that the internet has given people access to that we just never had before and the freedom to connect with people outside of your little bubble and really like feel free to be yourself is really incredible I actually got lost in a tiktok hole the other day as we all do at the moment in isolation what else are we doing and um I stumbled onto this trend where girls are coming out using a Jason Derulo song from like five years ago. Yeah, I saw. I haven't seen that. So the lyrics are like, oh my, oh my, oh my God, this girl's straight and this girl's not. And so they like, they'll have a friend there or a mom or whatever, and they'll point to the other one when it says this girl's straight. And then they'll point to themselves and say, this girl's not. And then they've got the reaction of like their mom or whoever being like, wait, what? And like, it's so beautiful that like, you know, you're watching these 15 year old girls coming out on the internet and being so proud to post it when we were grow. Growing up like that just didn't even exist.
2: It's so different. I too get lost in the TikTok universe. <laughs> I think a lot of my generation now is like discovering TikTok and being like, what are these young people up to? But I just feel this like deep sense of pride because I'm like, this is the fruit of our labor. Like this is what we were fighting for is for people to like feel so much more comfortable in their own skin. I mean, there's still so much we have to do, but I just feel like even in the past decade, so much has changed.
0: Looking at you on social media and what you're putting out there, confidence is definitely something that comes to mind. And I think that confidence is a really complicated thing for most people. And I know for me, it was definitely a journey to find mine. Hard labor went into that. So I'd love to hear from you. What did your journey look like to finding your confidence to be able to just say, hey, this is me, here I am. And I don't care what you think about that?
2: I think it's a work in progress. I feel like people often get surprised when they meet me in person because they're like, online, you're like so loud, you're so vocal. And I'm like, okay, well, that's one dimension of me. But also there's like more quiet, timid, scared part of me as well. And I accept that it's never a before and after. I think that being non-binary for me is about rejecting all binaries and all dichotomies and actually appreciating the kind of gradients of everything, that everything is a spectrum, including confidence. And I think that we feel like, okay, if I just access this version of self-love, then life is going to be easy. But then it's like, there's always going to be something that sets you back and it's a back and forth process. But I would say that in my life, the first thing was when I left Texas, I swore to myself that I would never compromise my authenticity for anyone else because I had spent the majority of my life doing it and and there was no way I was going to do it anymore. And so I just went berserk. I just threw myself into all the things that I couldn't do. I started dressing myself in everything I wanted to wear. I started to be involved with every single political and social justice movement on my campus that I went to college in that I could. I started to take as many classes to learn as much knowledge as possible. I just felt like I was so thirsty for like knowledge and expression and I think that sense of passion has stuck with me where I'm like, okay, there are people in the world who don't have the opportunities that I do. So I need to actually use these opportunities seriously and actually create a world where everyone can do it.
1: Mm, I love what you said there, where you said you decided to never compromise your authenticity for anyone else. Because I think that right there is so important because how do you embrace who you are? Well, if you are authentically you, Automatically, you're going to live your truth every single day. And that's really incredible. We would love you to explain
0: to our listeners what gender nonconforming actually means.
2: Sure, totally. And that's a great way for me to put a plug for my forthcoming book.
1: Oh, perfect. <laughs> which is
2: called Beyond the Gender Binary, which is coming out in June.
1: Amazing. Love the illustration.
2: Thank you. People in Australia can order it from my online store. We're shipping globally. But essentially, gender nonconforming means that you visibly defy the stereotypes of what a man or a woman should look like. So people who are gender nonconforming can be either cisgender or transgender. Cisgender people are people who identify with the gender that they were assigned at birth. Transgender people are people who identify with a different gender than they were assigned at birth. So a cis person who's gender nonconforming could be, say, for example, an effeminate gay man, or a butch lesbian, or even just a butch woman more generally. And a trans person who's gender nonconforming could be like someone like me, who's non-binary, but who visibly takes things that are traditionally seen as masculine and feminine and completely warps your perception of them. And the reason I use gender nonconforming so often is because I think that a lot of misogynist and patriarchal violence is distributed on people who are visibly gender non-conforming because the way that the system works is by policing people who are gender non-conforming back into the gender binary. So back into, this is what it means to be a woman, or this is what it means to be a man. And I use fashion as a really great example to show what this looks like literally. So It used to be this way in Australia, but I'm not as familiar with the history there. But in the United States, it used to be illegal for women to wear pants, and it was illegal for men to wear dresses.
0: Oh, my God.
2: Because the idea was something called the three-article law, meaning you had to wear at least three articles of clothing associated with your assigned sex. Otherwise, you were committing a criminal offense. And what happened is the Stonewall riots that I was mentioning before it was a fashion protest because people were actually saying, Stop throwing me in prison for what I want to wear, girl. Like, I should be able to wear heels. I should be able to wear a suit. And what you see is after 1969, the suit became seen as gender neutral and pants became seen as gender neutral, that anyone could wear that. That it's not seen as gender non conforming for a woman to wear pants, but it's still seen as gender non conforming for a man to wear a dress. And that has to do with misogyny is that we think that. Articles of clothing that are associated with masculinity are just normal. So that's why like blue jeans and t-shirts became universal. But why can't a skirt be normal, especially in the summer when it's freaking hot? Like, why do we think that like men are losing their masculinity if they wear a skirt? Are you kidding me? And so I think that what I'm really trying to move towards is a world where we don't even have this distinction between gender non-conforming or gender conforming, where we're just sort of like beauty. And we recognize everyone's beauty and recognize that there's actually multiple ways to be beautiful. There's not just one feminine standard or one masculine standard.
1: That is so incredible to hear you talk about that and explain the history behind that. I didn't know it at all. And even as feminists, we're constantly questioning things and pushing the boundaries. And you're so right. Like, why can't men wear dresses? Why can't men wear makeup? And why do women have to?
2: I think at the end of the day, I return to... The simple idea that people own their bodies is seen as such a radical concept for so many people. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Our self-fashioning belongs to us. And I think that patriarchy has made us think that we have to dress up for other people, but actually your self-presentation completely belongs to you. And that means you should not experience violence if your skirt is too short. You should not experience violence if you are perceived as a man, but you're wearing makeup. That should not be happening. And I think it's really upsetting to me how we've settled that progress only has to come from palatability. And what I mean by that is like, when we look at the gay rights movement, often the only ways that gay men and lesbian women got rights was saying, our relationships are just like you we are a monogamous, married, just like you, but what about people who are not married? What about people who are single? Like, There's always a group that we cut out as a way to get accepted. And I think what I'm trying to do with my art and with my advocacy is actually say, there's more than enough room for everyone. That beauty actually comes from recognizing the infinite complexity and diversity of everyone and everything. And that we're all fluid and transforming and that that fluidity and transformation is a beautiful generative process, not something we should fear.
0: When I hear you talk about that, it's so open and beautiful. And I guess obvious to me when you speak, I'm like, yeah, sweet, cool. But There are people that don't share that sentiment and that makes me angry, to be honest, but I don't research a lot in this space and I don't live a lot in this space. Like Steph mentioned, we do a lot with female empowerment, but we really don't live in this space. So why do you think that people feel they have a right to tell people how to live because there is a sense of that. Right. I just
1: don't have a right to tell anyone else how to live. And you're not saying every man should be wearing a skirt. If you don't want to wear a skirt, don't fucking wear a skirt. Like who cares? Totally. Why are you telling other people what to do? Yeah,
0: but why do they feel that they have that right to say you need to be this way?
2: I think that I'm trying to figure that out and so much of what my art is about is trying to do that. And I feel like where I'm at in my life is actually profound empathy. I feel like I had a lot of rage and anger, but then I began to realize that people are doing what has been done to them. And it's a chain reaction that hurt people, hurt people is a real, real phrase. We know this so well that oftentimes our mothers reenact the same kinds of gender policing that they experience on their daughters and on their kids. And so one of my biggest traumas growing up was that you would think that the women in my family would support me and my femininity, but instead they were like, why are you so feminine? Like you need to be more masculine. And I constantly would be like, why don't we break the cycle? But then you begin to realize, oh wait, people have been taught that their worth is dependent on their ability to conform And that when they see people who are not conforming, rather than being like, can you teach me how you did that? Or like, I'm curious, they want to stifle that immediately. And that's why for me, there's an insecurity behind every supremacy. I think that male supremacy is so fragile and so insecure because it recognizes the power of femininity and the power of women. And then rather than actually being like, hey, can you teach me like a more sustainable, ecologically friendly interpersonal and empathetic way of relating to the world. They're like, no, I have to repress that. And repression is a surefire sign that something is unresolved in someone. And I can tell this because there are straight men in my life who I walk by and they're just like, okay, cool, whatever. It's not remarkable. It's literally just a lamppost, a stop sign. And then there are straight cis men in my life who I walk by and they're so upset. And I'm like, okay, you're not as resolved in your masculinity and you're not as resolved in your heterosexuality as you thought that you were. So this is not actually about me, this is about you. And I think that's where I want us to start moving our conversation in the feminist movement is that so often we focus on empowerment but we lose the next narrative, which is disempowerment. We don't just need to empower women and trans people, we need to disempower patriarchy. And so what ends up happening is that we forget that actually women and trans people are competent, are whole, are enough. It's just that we exist in a system that says that we're not enough, right? And so the onus always becomes on us to change our behavior, our life, our sensibility, and not on them, To actually work on their self-repression and self-hatred and stop taking it out on us. And I've been feeling this a lot right now under the lockdown because you know, domestic violence is really on the rise here in the United States, and especially anti-trans and anti-LGBT violence. Since the lockdown, we've had three murders of trans women in the United States. We've seen multiple anti-trans legislation be passed, especially in states like Idaho. And I'm just sitting here, like, okay, we're in the middle of a global crisis and you're literally gonna be concerned about someone's gender identity? Like, mm. what is going on? But then I realize what feminism teaches us is that people displace their economic anxieties their fears about the political establishment, and they always put it on the bodies of women and trans people, that we are just like the dumping grounds for all of this male angst. And it just makes me so furious because what we're saying is your pain is valid, your pain is real, but that does not give you license to hurt other people and take it out on them. And how do we transform that pain into something beautiful?
1: Mm, it makes so much sense everything that anybody hates in another person is just reflecting something back into themselves and mm-hmm. It kind of gives me a little bit of hope that right now in isolation, everything is slowing down a little bit and giving everybody time to personally reflect because in order to shift as a whole, everybody kind of needs to shift as an individual. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm overly hopeful that things are really going to change from this period. But It is big things like this and big wake-up calls that hopefully will send more and more people into self-reflection and give them a chance to shift themselves and shift the world.
2: Mm -hmm. I think true self-reflection is one of the most difficult things to do in the world. And I think a lot of people in quarantine right now are really struggling because for the first time in perhaps years, they've had to be in their own head. And people are terrified by what they see in their own head because we spend so much of our time distracting ourselves, being as busy as possible, workaholism, aestheticizing everything away from actually looking at our real interior. My hope is that in that self-inquiry, people will be like, okay, I need to work on my mental health. But what I'm seeing is that there's not enough Resources and awareness of the importance of working on your mental health. Like, I think people still believe that mental health looks like something. Like, it looks like something you're struggling over there. It looks like you can't get up from bed. But there's a lot of functionally depressed people in this world and a lot of extremely functionally anxious people. And I really believe that mental health is the connection to all social justice issues. Like, when you're saying to me, Why are people restricting other people? I'm like, that has to do with their mental health and their unhappiness. And actually what's happening is the policing of my joy because I think what the LGBTQ community represents to the world is the explicit embrace of joy and a world that tells us to tone it down. Like, I'm the opposite of tone it down. I'm like, rev it up, girl. Give me that six inch heel on the freaking track. And I would wear that any day. I would wear that to go to the bodega. I'd wear that just to walk outside at the park. And people always say, that's too much. That's too much. And I'm like, "Mm, your trauma is showing. You've been told that you have to be quiet and timid in order to be loved. And what I'm actually showing you is that all of those rules are wrong, and you can do whatever you want.
1: What an incredibly profound connection is that one between mental health and oppression. I just feel like thinking about it 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 just applies to violence everywhere in the world. It it applies to absolutely everything everybody needs to like meditate. We had our meditation teacher on here the other day. And it's just like, if everyone could just go within, we would just be living in a totally different society. Totally. And it's shifting your
0: mentality too, right? In that there's fear and there's love and like everything that you're talking about is like fear, fear, fear. Like it's Mm -hmm. so clear to me that that's where it comes from. Why aren't we more compassionate? Why aren't we more empathetic? Those are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves. And I think that I even need to be asking myself that even when I said it makes me angry that people want to put their beliefs on other people. I am a victim of that too. Like
1: I need to be more Mm -hmm. compassionate about that as well. Yeah, totally. Because when we all respond with anger, then it just results in this clash. And that's actually not where we get anywhere. So if we're all bringing empathy to the table, that's when we can have progress.
2: I think it's about holding both. It's about being like, we need to be able to be in touch with our rage and our grief because there is injustice and that's a natural response to it. But then when we're crafting our strategy on what to do about that, We have to actually have compassion to understand why people are doing the things that they're doing and to not replicate the same systems that have been done to us. And I see so much of what feminism means to me personally is breaking free from patriarchal cycles of toxicity and actually inventing a new way to live in the world. And also part of my feminism is understanding that the things that have been seen as immaterial or fake are actually some of the most powerful things in the world, like feelings. What I always say is feelings are real, gender is not. And what I mean by that is we've been taught in our world that the gender binary is this natural biological phenomenon, when actually it's a political and cultural social phenomenon that emerged in the 18th century within the Western world, disappearing thousands of indigenous cosmologies that were outside of the Western gender binary. There's nothing natural about it. It's ahistoric to say that. But... What we're taught is that feelings are something we're just making up. Where we're in anatomy class or biology class, when we're kids, they teach us all these organs, but they don't actually teach us about our brains and trauma and our nervous system. And so we have to like Google to be like, how do I get through a panic attack? When that should be integrated in every curriculum, having panic attacks are totally natural. Depression is totally natural life is full of pain and struggle let's actually teach meditation in schools let's teach yoga let's actually uplift things like acupuncture but i think that what i'm really trying to do is to show the world i think everyone looks at me as an artist and they're like oh well you're an artist so you're allowed to feel your emotions and like dress in a weird way and what i'm trying to whisper to everyone is be like you're an artist too you know all of us have creativity And maybe we won't dedicate that as our career, but the way that you dress, the way that you treat people, the way that you speak, the way that you dance to music, these are all ways to express your creativity. And the secret behind art is it allows us to do the impossible, to take rage and turn it into compassion, to take the things that are impossible and actually strategize around them. And that's why I believe in art.
1: The incredible Elizabeth Gilbert, author of Eat, Pray, Love. I don't know if you've seen, she has a book called Big Magic. That's this amazing book where she's encouraging everybody to embrace their creativity. It's an awesome read. Yeah, we're
0: nodding so hard right now while you talk as well. I'm like, can't (laughs) nod hard enough. (laughs) And feelings is actually something that we wanted to chat to you about because we've been following you for a while now and you are so brave in the things that you talk about and you're so open and honest. And I know that when I see things like your post, it makes me feel like I have a right to feel. It creates a space for other people to jump in and be like, me too. And also Mm. this, this, this and that about me. Mm. Have you thought about that? Is that what's nurturing that? 100%.
2: I just want to give everyone permission to feel. I do these workshops called feeling workshops, where I bring 30 to 40 strangers. And my goal is that in two hours, we realize that we're best friends. And what we do in feelings workshop is there's only one rule, you're not allowed to justify what you feel. And when you try to like explain or contextualize, we're like pineapple, because (sighs) you don't need to have a reason to feel. And one of the premises behind Feelings Workshops is that feeling actually allows us to get negative energy out of our bodies. Like if you don't scream, that scream goes internal as sadness. If you don't laugh, then that laugh never will come back. And so one of the things that we do in Feelings Workshops is we just scream together three times. We just do three breaths and then we scream as long and as loud as we want. And people start crying because they're like, I've never been able to scream I'm always afraid of taking up space. There's so many times in the day where someone mistreats me and I want to yell and I can't. And after I started doing feelings workshops about four years ago, I was like, this is my heart work because when we create a world where people are actually connected to what they feel, I believe that we're going to feel empathy. There's this mistaken narrative going on around the world right now that humans are inherently competitive. And I'm like, that's bogus. Actually, I believe the human condition is one of deep love, deep support, and deep mutual aid and interdependence. And that when we access what we feel, we actually see other people and we're like, whoa, they're also deeply complex emotional people. They're probably going through a lot of things too. Why don't I just love them? I feel like these past 10 years for me have been such a journey of love because I could have done the same thing my beliefs did to me and been like, I'm the baddest, I'm the most amazing, I'm the coolest. And instead, I'm just like, vulnerability is my jam. Vulnerability is how I build intimate partnerships. And I feel like for me, vulnerability was something I learned because when I'm being harassed in public, which happens a lot, And actually happened a lot in Melbourne where I was bashed when I performed there in 2016. (gasps) I took the tram after one of my gigs and a man punched me in the face on a tram in front of 26 people. And what I've really learned about that and having to navigate situations like that Sometimes I have to go up to just complete strangers and be like, hey, I need help. Like this guy is about to do something to me. Or like I have to call a friend on the phone when I'm getting followed home and be like, hey, I just need to talk to someone. So I had to learn how to be really courageous and how to ask for support. And then once I started doing that, I was like, wait, we should all be asking for support all the time. And we should normalize being able to be like, hey, everyone, I need help. Instead of shaming people for asking for help, we should uplift and celebrate that.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm like walking around the streets at the moment where it's dead. We're all going through this same thing. And I walk past people and I kind of go to smile and say, hey, like as if we're in a small town and people just like keep looking straight and walk straight past. We're all in our like own little mini worlds, but we've kind of put ourselves there. And by being open and sharing and speaking about our feelings and connecting, it's what really, at the end of the day, nourishes us. We're searching out there for anything that can kind of give us fulfillment. But really, we know now that that is what gives fulfillment. And it really does take vulnerability. My boyfriend and I, over the last few months, you know, like last year, I went on a huge self-development journey. And I realized I don't talk about my feelings. I don't feel my feelings. I really don't access that. So we're doing something now where Most nights we'll sit down and we'll just give each other the space to talk about how we feel, not to justify, like you said, not to respond because in order to like feel really safe to put your feelings out there, you want to know that somebody's not going to come back at you or accuse you of anything for them Mm. and just letting out your feelings. And there is something so powerful in that Mm. we feel so much more connected for doing that. And also we just feel like we have a right to feel however we feel. And I feel so much more me because of it. Mm
2: -hmm. And it builds such a more loving relationship because love does not come from erasing one another. It comes from accentuating one another and enhancing one another. And I feel like we've been taught by the system that we're only going to be lovable if we disappear ourselves. And that if we actually show like the full extent of our weirdness, of our eccentricity, of our rage, of our sadness. People are going to say that we're too much. So many lives are unlived because people are afraid of being too much. I was one of the caretakers for my grandfather in his last year of his life. And I saw what happens when you don't work through your demons before your last days. You're haunted. And he was so haunted and tortured by all the stuff that he never processed in his life. And I forgive him because at that time, they didn't have frameworks like mental health. They didn't have diagnoses like, post-traumatic stress disorder. It was just kind of like grin and bear it, get ahead. But our generation has these resources and I just keep on telling everyone if we don't process this stuff now, we're not going to have a comfortable afterlife and we're not going to have a a nice pathway into our death. We're going to be stressed out and that's the importance of having intergenerational connection because what I learned from my elders is, Alok, live your best life now because it's not guaranteed in the future and you don't want to have regrets.
0: I'm also so sorry that you had that experience when you came to Melbourne. And that actually makes me feel so ashamed to live here and like makes me quite emotional. So I'm really just wanted to say I'm so sorry about that because that should not be happening to anyone. And that's absolutely disgusting.
2: Yeah, it was a really difficult moment for me. And I think that it took me years to really name that. Because I think that at the time, I was just so much in fight or flight mode that I was like, I'm just going to keep on working. I'm going to like push myself through this. And I think like a lot of women and trans people who experience gender-based violence, you don't want to be complaining because you're like, okay, well, I have all these privileges. I'm not like this. And you just do all this mental gymnastics. And so I just spent the next few years just working, working, working until I couldn't until my body literally, and similar to what you were saying before, there just comes a moment where you just need to take a break and you need to really go in. And I started to do that last summer. So I've been on this journey for kind of a year where I really started to work on meditation. I started to like take much less gigs, travel much less, hang out with fewer and fewer friends, go to fewer and fewer parties, start reading more, being in my house more, playing video games more and relearning my relationship with myself. And what in that journey, what I actually found out was I was so traumatized by that because I felt like my entire life, I was giving and giving and giving and giving. And in that one moment when I needed support, from strangers who I'm fighting for so much, I felt betrayed because no one supported me. And so what felt more painful was less the person who was the assailant, but actually more everyone else who just watched and was complicit. And that kind of complicit pain, I think is the most painful because then you begin to have a distrust, like, okay, I'm this loving person, but maybe people shouldn't be loved. And so I started to doubt all of what I believed. And then I was like, no, if I stopped loving, then they would win. I have to keep loving and I have to keep believing and I have to keep having spirit and faith. And I really, this year, have been coming into my faith and for me coming into my faith means believing in the inherent goodness and dignity of people that every incentive in the world is to see someone and be like, Oh, they're a bitch. They don't understand they're concerned. Like we just have this negative thing coming in and especially around other women and trans people. And now what I really practice in my life is every woman and trans person I meet, I'm kind, I'm smiling, I'm loving, I'm understanding, I'm empathetic. I challenge my own internalized misogyny to like hold them to some impossible standard of being perfect. I accept imperfection. And that actually gives me the kind of safety that I wanted. And I know that might sound weird, but safety actually comes from this internal sense of self-awareness to be like, wow, I'm part of something greater than myself.
0: It doesn't sound weird at all. I can completely relate to what you're talking about. And it also sounds like, in weird ways, we've all gone on similar journeys recently, which is funny that we've all come together at this time.
2: There are no coincidences. <laughs> Things happen for you. <laughs> no,
1: <guys>. no. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> really quickly, just want to talk about body hair. Mm-hmm. My legs are so hairy at the moment in isolation. Amazing. Like, my arm <laughs> hair, it's like mm-hmm. never seen them this hairy in my life. I'm Moroccan, so we. we have the genes. Yeah, we have the ability when the salons close down. So I feel like I don't care about it, but. At the same time, I'm really embarrassed for other people to see me like that. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to chat to you about that. How did you come to embrace that and start to not let other people's opinions of body hair affect you? Because, you know, we see it on Instagram that you get a lot of hate around that.
2: Right. I would say like the most hate I ever get is about my body hair. It's just so funny. It's like, of all things to be nitpicky about with me. (laughs) You gotta really say that. You know, some of my earliest memories growing up in an Indian household were my mom's deep fear of her body hair. And she would tell me things like, when I'm older, make sure that you have some health aid that is plucking my mustache hairs because I don't want anyone to see them. And I remember my sister who's older than me being shamed the minute that she got arm hair. And I just remember this like deep panic because there was this idea of people are, are going to doubt our womanhood and our femininity because they're going to think that we're somehow mannish. And I just saw the anguish and the pain that that caused them. And it, it hit me. So when I was from 10 to like 13, I used to sneak my sister's razors and shave every hair on my body. I would have cuts. I'd be bloody. I'd have razor burn. I'd had ingrown hair. And you couldn't tell anyone because I was supposed to be a boy. So a boy was supposed to be shaving. So I didn't want to tell people like, hey, everyone, I'm actually in a lot of pain right now because I've been shaving my body and I don't even know how, you know, it's from a cheap razors. And so literally, I have the scars, the blood, the ingrown hair to prove it. This was causing me more pain than good. On the one hand, I was saying, oh, it's painful for other people to say these things about me. But then I was literally causing myself pain. And whose pain was I prioritizing? And so... It's taken me years and I still have a lot of discomfort. Like a lot of people think once again, I've just achieved this Zen where I just have no self insecurity. I'll be like, this is the summer of wearing like tank tops all the time. Even if I'm in quarantine, girl, I'm going to be wearing literally booty shorts, tank tops, bikinis, onesies. Like I'm just all about skin. And I get scared because I'm like, oh gosh, I don't like the hair on my upper arm. Or like, oh gosh, you fixate on one thing. And you're like, oh my God, I would look so much more beautiful if... And then I just breathe into that spot. I literally close my eyes and breathe into the spot that I'm hating. And I interrogate, is this hate mine or is this someone else's? And then most of the time I be like, this is someone else's. And it's because I've never seen an image of someone in a bikini with back hair. I've never seen an image of someone in a crop top with hair on their belly. And so what do I do as an artist? I'm gonna create that image to heal myself and to heal other people. And so, so much of my artwork comes from a desire to self heal. A lot of people read my portraits as things that are results of my reaching a peak in my journey, but actually they're part of my journey. Sometimes they look at my photos and I'm like, oh my God, I'm scared by that too. And then I interrogate my own fear of that, you know? There's nothing wrong with fear. What's wrong is when we let fear overcome us. If we have a healthy relationship with fear, then we can turn that fear into discomfort. And then we can turn that discomfort into knowledge because knowledge comes from discomfort.
0: Everything that you kind of touch on is always coming back to questioning, you know, questioning other people's actions and opinions, but also questioning your own. And I think that that's such an important thing that we often don't hear is that all of our thoughts are patterns that are created and it is important for us to question them. And I definitely feel like closing your eyes and breathing into it, that's something that I am now going to take home and try out for myself. So I'm excited about that. Thank you. Yeah,
2: I've found very stereotypical in this, but in this past year, I've just been returning to my breath. Our breath is one of the most profound technologies, one of the most profound artists, institutions, our breath is powerful because it's actually connected to our vagus nerve, which regulates our entire nervous system. And so a deep breath is actually a way that you teach your body how to calm itself. And what I've really learned in my life is I can't control the things that are external to me. I single-handedly can't end the pandemic. I can't end transphobia. I can't end racism. I can't end body shaming. But what I can control is my reaction to all of those things. And so rather than getting in, and this goes to that conversation we're having about compassion and rage, rather than defaulting into that fight or flight mode, when I do my deep breath, when I do my meditative art practice, when I make my work, I'm able to really not respond with that same vitriol that's turned against me. And so I I really want to reiterate, I think, a theme in this conversation that's been coming up is we're breaking many binaries not just between boy girl male female man woman straight gay but also mind body but also self collective and what you realize is the collective is part of the self, the self is part of the collective the body is part of the mind the mind is part of the body and when you break down those arbitrary distinctions and recognize that we're all actually energetic and we're flowing in and out of each other then your empathy is just a natural way of living in the world because you're like, I am the sun. I am this other person. I am, you know? So your sense of self becomes so much more robust.
1: Now I'm shaking my head. But that's just like a bit even bigger <laughs> nod. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for summing that up so incredibly wonderfully for us. That was just unbelievable we do wrap up all our conversations with quick fires so we'll shoot into those quickly what are some of your favorite fashion labels
2: oh gosh I just watched a documentary on Netflix about Jeremy Scott and Moschino and it was so good (laughs) I'm obsessed with Moschino obviously I'm obsessed with Alexander McQueen forever and always and then I also really want to wrap an amazing brand called Chromat which is a body positive queer feminist swimwear line
0: awesome Can you talk to us about what you're wearing right now? I really love your (laughs) t-shirt.
2: Thank you. I'm wearing a t-shirt that says, call me they. And it was made by an artist that I met in Hong Kong years ago.
1: Amazing. We didn't touch on pronouns in the conversation, but like, I just love that it all summed up with the (laughs) t-shirt. You've walked in fashion shows, spoken at massive events, been in magazines. What has been your craziest moment when you're just like, is this my life? (laughs)
2: There have been so many of those, but I think one of them that comes to mind is at the beginning of 2019, I headlined a festival in Mumbai, India called the Spoken Fest, and it was an outdoor festival, and there were thousands of people sitting around me, and a stage was in the center of the people. I've never performed in the center of a crowd. I've always been in front, and so seeing everyone like look at me like that was so surreal and beautiful.
0: Oh, that sounds like an incredible experience. And lastly, who inspires you?
2: So many people, but right now I keep turning to books because that's who I am. Someone named Anne Hollander, who wrote a book called Sex and Suits, The Evolution of Modern Dress, which is about how fashion came to be gendered. When I read this book, I wept. Anne Hollander is so sensational. She's so brilliant and so incisive. And I just love people who write about fashion in emotional ways because my relationship with fashion is deeply emotional. And people see it as just like, oh, you just care about colors and textures. I'm like, no, these are my feelings that are embodied. And I felt like she felt that too. So she made me feel a little bit less lonely.
1: Oh, look, thank you so, so much. We are just so humbled that you chatted to us today and feeling so inspired by this conversation. I feel like when this is all over we need some feelings workshops in melbourne yes you. i need to come we back we're gonna show you yeah, a way we, better we need time to do it again yeah, yeah. we yeah. need a do
2: over do over <laughs> i've been saying i need a do over it's been like almost four years now and i'm like girl i just need to really come back and tour everywhere across australia like yes. i really need to do that yeah hopefully when quarantine times are over i'll be the first one at the airport <laughs>
0: Oh, you guys, that was so freaking awesome. Oh my goodness. We have been fans of Luke for a very long time now and to get to sit down with them and just pick their brain about all of the things that are in there. And I've got to say, they were just as magical in person as I thought that they would be. Mm,
1: Same. So if you guys do want to go and follow Alok on Instagram, definitely recommend. They have some really fun, empowering imagery. Instagram at Alok V Menon. We will chuck that in the show notes for you. Mm, And I'll definitely be getting their book. Oh,
0: can't same. wait for that to come out. Very excited. Yeah. So
1: if you did enjoy this episode, we would just absolutely love to ask you to help us get the word out about this podcast so that other people get to listen as well. You can do that in a few ways. You can rate us five stars or leave a review in your podcast app. You can share the episode with a friend or where you are listening from, probably your home, on Instagram. Make sure you tag us at how to live and we love to share those. Also Come on over to our Facebook group, How to Live the Podcast, where we continue the chat and always share bonus content. Next week on the podcast, we were
0: going to tell you who was on, but then we just had a little bit of a bing bang and we decided that we're going to wait. You know, we talked about the reshuffle that we're doing with our episodes because we want to be bringing really, really relevant content to you. We know the episode's going to be amazing, but we just want to keep our lips tight on that one for now. Well, we promise it'll be awesome. Have a beautiful week, friends. We really do hope that this conversation has impacted you and you're thinking about it long after you stop listening. I know I will be. Mm, I know I will be too. And we will chat to you soon. Bye guys. Virtual hugs.